From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello, welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show, and I'm honored that you're joining us today. Lately, it seems we've been living the Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. Just consider the events from the last six weeks. We don't have to look back very far. The Mayan calendar ended, which was predicted to be the end of the world. Well, here we are. The U.S. averted the fiscal cliff, or at least I would say they kicked the can further down the road. We turn another page of the calendar to 2013. More countries have joined the race to the bottom. What do I mean by that? That's the race to weaken their currencies. And despite all of these things, the stock markets around the world keep climbing. And market volatility is approaching the lows we saw in the early 1990s. And I keep saying volatility will start increasing. So far, it doesn't look like it. These are indeed interesting times. Incidentally, the curse, may you live in interesting times, is the first of three curses of increasing severity, which makes me look forward to the next few months and years cautiously. On the Wealth DNA Radio Show, we've been doing a series on alternative investments to help you prepare, yeah, you, you, our listeners, for what might be the biggest event of the decade. Uh, You see, eventually, there will be an end to the 35-year bull market. Uh, for bonds, that is, and that's uh, that we really have had a 35-year bull run. And I'm just glancing up, Pete. I haven't seen the chat window, although let me refresh my screen, make sure I've got the newest uh, newest stuff. I'm not seeing the chat window up. Oh, there it is. It's coming up. So my 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 bad on that one. When we had Russ Wiles of the Arizona Republic on several months ago, we talked about many alternatives that very conservative investors should consider to CDs and money markets, where a lot of money has been parked on the sidelines. Today, we have a special guest, Jason Slade of Raitman James, to talk about one of those potential alternatives to bonds, MLPs. And unlike many of the others we've talked about recently, MLPs are available through the same broker channel you're currently using for stocks and bonds. Today is January 28, 2013. It's 9.02 in Phoenix, Arizona, 11.02 on the East Coast, and it's 5.02 p.m. in continental Europe. Now, if you're wondering why I mention the various time zones, it's to help you remember that unlike a local broadcast, we have listeners all around the world, some sipping coffee like me and others opening a bottle of wine. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. This show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss a show, you can hear it on the archives. They are on wealthdna.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archived. And there you'll find our interview with Russ Wiles and each of our shows in this series on alternative investments. Incidentally, the link we included in our email announcement is the same link that takes you to the archive of today's show. We welcome your comments and questions during the show. You can either use the chat window below the uh, radio player or call in, in our, and our producer will put you through. The call-in number is 917-388-4162, which is also shown at the top of the screen. By the way, the U.S. equity markets, after eight days of increases, are down this morning, which is very typical for a Monday. Asia was strange. Japan was down about 1%, and China up almost 2.5%. Europe is mixed and nothing dramatic there, but Brazil is down over 1%. I think it's time to introduce our guest, Jason Slade, who's a financial advisor with Raymond James. I know a lot of financial advisors and honestly say he's one of the best I've met. In some ways, he like many politicians. Ooh, that doesn't sound good, does it? Well, politicians will readily share their topics, their opinions on, on almost any topic, I should say. But unlike politicians, Jason can talk about any economics, investment-related topic intelligently. Jason runs uh, two weekly meetings for investors in the Phoenix area. I've been participating in one of those groups for five years, so I've really gotten to know him and have been amazed by the number of topics he can address intelligently, unlike politicians. So let's give a warm radio welcome to Jason Slade. Welcome, Jason, and glad you're finally got you on this show. Thanks, Ron. I appreciate that. Appreciate that introduction. It's going to be tough to live up to. 
<laughs> oh, not a, I'm not. I'm convinced it will not be at all. Uh, now, I gave a brief overview of your background. I obviously, talked a little bit about the uh, the uh, groups you you run. But how do you introduce yourself when you meet new people? You know, I, I usually it's um, one of the questions that comes up quite often. You know, what are you, what is it that you do? And I mm-hmm. usually just tell people that I I help them make sound decisions with their uh, with their finances. We've been doing that for 15 years. Um, whether it's estate planning or as you and I talk about it, the coffee clubs uh, that we hold, whether it mm-hmm. be Wednesday or Thursday, just help people be informed about the options that are there and, and have them make it, whatever decision we're going to make, let's let, let it be one that we have as much information as we can on it. Okay, and occasionally you probably introduce yourself as your wife's other half or your kid's <laughs> dad, right? Uh, when I do that, I tell them, I, yes, yes, I do. And the short end of the gene pool when it comes to my bride, but... Uh, <laughs> No, it's it's you know the, there's also the personal side, not just the financial side. But before we jump into the uh, topic for today, let's make sure each of our listeners know a little bit about Raymond James. See, some might assume that it's some small financial planning group here in the Phoenix area that Mr. Raymond James started, and he's hired a few bright financial advisors like you and and even your brother to uh, work for him. So why don't you explain a little bit about Raymond James? This is a great question because um, technically, um, well, Raymond James has been around since 1962. If you're looking mm-hmm. for it as a publicly traded entity, it trades under the ticker of RJF. It was actually the, the brainchild of two gentlemen, Robert James and Edward Raymond, who had two different firms that uh, down in Florida, and they merged mm-hmm. the two of those, as I said, back in 1962. And that's blossomed to now there are more than 6,300 advisors across the country in about 2,600 locations. I think it's important. Uh, let me split that group just a little bit, if I might. Okay. There is Raymond James and Associates, which are uh-huh. uh, that's the Raymond James brokerage per se. And then there's the branch or the group that, that I'm associated with, which is Raymond James Financial Services. And the unique difference there is um, my firm, you know, we, are an in, we are independent financial advisors. Um, that came out, to me, that was an important distinction in what we would be able to offer to our clients, uh, giving them unbiased um, advice and, and hopefully giving best of breed in every, in every single category without having to answer to a specific brokerage. Okay, and so it's kind of like a uh, if you looked at the business equivalent of the uh, franchise or something, you might have company-owned stores would be the associates, and then you would have the uh, franchise or the independents that are using the uh, moniker of Raymond James. So uh, a little yeah. bit of an analogy. Yep, very very good analogy, and, and again correct in that respect. Okay, and so it's it's really a Wall Street type securities firm, but. As you mentioned, they started, and I, I think they're still headquartered in Florida, and I guess the offices are spread out all over the U.S., and, and as I looked around, a lot in Canada as well. So uh, basically a Wall Street firm that's based in Florida. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, yeah that's a, a very fair way to say it. It's uh, co- certainly coast-to-coast coast, um, because it, it was started in the Tampa-St. Pete area. Mm-hmm. You find a pretty heavy concentration of Raymond James along the eastern seaboard and then certainly on the on the west coast. Um, not a whole lot in the uh, after you get west of the Mississippi until you get to the coastline. There aren't that many offices, but as I said earlier, about 6,300 total advisors within the firm and about 2,600 locations across both the U.S. and Canada, as you alluded to. There is a presence in Canada as well. Okay, and uh, the interesting thing is that it's not uh, Mr. Raymond uh, James. It was a Mr. Raymond and a Mr. James, and they merged. That's so, exactly uh, right. <laughs> it's just like a, just like right. a law firm. They got both last names put together. They, <laughs> they just they just happen to sound both like uh, first names and both last last names. So it's yeah, it's hard to tell. Now while we're at it, let's make sure we get your contact information out so listeners know how to uh, reach you or to review your uh, website as well. Um, okay, a couple of different ways to contact us. Uh, mm-hmm. the, our, our street address, and we actually have two locations, 14950 West Indian School Road, and we're Suite 180 here in Goodyear. Okay. Um, that's Goodyear. Uh, we're really kind of on the on the border there between Litchfield Park and Goodyear, uh, so a nice little location. Then we also have a location up in Sun City West right. off of Meeker Boulevard. That's at 13843 West Meeker, and that's Suite number 101. Pretty easy to get a, get in contact with. Uh, one point of contact for the phone number is six two three four seven eight two three six eight. 
And then you alluded to it earlier with the mm-hmm. kind of the franchise mentality. The actual name of the business entity, if you were to look uh, look us up, the name of our business entity says Legacy Financial Services Group, and that's okay. actually the title of our website. So LegacyFinancialServicesGroup.com. That tends to be a mouthful, and so we've shortened it. Uh, if you just type in my name, Jason L, the, the letter L, Slade, S L A D E dot com. That takes you right to our website, and that gives bios for the different advisors that are uh, that are part of our group and locations. Also gives some of the information for the coffee clubs and some of the other things that we try to make available, uh, along with some content uh, to again keep us keep us informed so that we're making good decisions uh, with with those dollars that we have stewardship for. Okay, let me just repeat that uh, website: jasonlslade.com. All right, and if they see Legacy Financial Services, they shouldn't panic. It's not the right, Correct. the wrong place. It is the right place. Uh, Correct. It, just was, a, it was uh, such a mouthful. We tried to shorten it down a little bit. Sure, understand, understand. Okay, and although people have gotten much more used to typing that stuff in back in the old days, if you had a website longer than four four letters, people kind of got confused. But today, it's uh, gotten to be less of an issue as. Uh, uh, as we've all gotten got a little bit more keyboard uh, or, or screen-friendly. Anyway, I thought it might be helpful uh, if we first talk about how MLPs fit into the uh, overall investment landscape and, of course, define what they are. Uh, see, I got started in, in something back in the mid-'80s. I went back and checked in my in my records. There was a big push by uh, invers- investment firms to get clients, uh, and I was one of those to invest in these publicly traded limited partnerships that were designed really as tax shelters. Tax rates were much higher back then, and the idea was to take advantage of some of the depreciation, depletion allowances. Now, are MLPs an outgrowth, or are they the same thing? Tell us a little bit about how they fit into the overall landscape. Uh, again, terrific question. And if you look back, um, master limited partnerships, at least of, of the variety that, that we'll discuss, mm-hmm. were really first started in 1981. And so it, 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 the genesis, I would, I would suggest, uh, fits part of what you're talking about. Where right. Hey, we're going to have some tax advantages here and some depreciation, and as you mentioned, the depletion, the depletion allowances. And that's really gone forward um, to where we are right now. The you know, Master Limited Partnership, as we'll discuss, most of those are publicly traded, and, and the, there's some key components. Usually there's a general partner, and then you and I, we own units as opposed mm-hmm. to shares when we purchase Correct. them. And we then become uh, part of that limited partnership uh, or limited partner substrata within that, within that group. So certainly the genesis comes from what you're familiar with that was started back in the uh, back in the 80s. Okay. And uh, as I recall, actually, when I look back at some of the ones I uh, got involved in, were uh, they were not very liquid. So if I wanted to exit, I needed to contact my broker. He would go ahead and get a price quote. There was usually a pretty big spread because they, they weren't intended to be traded. They were kind of like these trusts or something like that. Uh, and I assume that's not a problem at all with the uh, MLPs we're going to be talking about. You're 100% correct. That, that's been one of the, in the evolution of this particular asset class, that's been one of the big changes and part of, um, quite honestly, part of the allures that gives you an, an opportunity to, to tap into some items that can give you uh, certainly some better income, higher yield to your portfolio, but very, very liquid. Um, to you. They, they're bought and sold on, on exchanges every single day. And so that liquidity issue that you are familiar with from the early 80s, right. Has really been washed out of the washed out of the process. Okay. All right. Excellent. Now, when I also hear the term uh, partnership, I think about the uh, legal liability of some of the partners. Uh, are and you touched on the two different types, but are the investors in MLPs? If you or I are investing in them, are we liable for the debts of the uh, or the actions of the uh, partners in this uh, in this uh, venture? No, those uh, again, terrific question. That really falls to whoever the general partner is, and the the, the general partner certainly they're they're well rewarded for those risks that they take. But you and I, when we buy uh, Kinder Morgan or a Lynn Energy or any of those other master limited partnerships, we we don't we don't bring that additional burden or liability onto ourselves. Okay. All right. That's that's important. So somebody doesn't think of it as a partnership where uh, all of a sudden they're going to be uh, getting lawsuits or having to put in uh, equity if something goes wrong or whatever else. So uh, it is not not those kinds of partners. We are we are limited partners, as I think you said it appropriately. Okay. Yeah, now it, let's it, what, mm-hmm, sure. 
I was Go just going to say we we really with with all the investments and certainly with this one you don't want to you don't want to bring on any unintended risk that that becomes the key with just almost every investment that we do and so you, that distinction is very important uh, owning this owning the equity I don't I don't want to create additional risk outside of what's already within the portfolio so very very good point. Okay, so whatever I put in is the maximum risk I have it uh, in that thing. It's not like uh, if I own my own company, I may have to to go ahead and feed it money. So no, it is it is an important thing, and I like your term, not unintended risk. Uh, we got to know what the heck we're getting into. Um, okay, let's talk talk still about this landscape. Uh, if I look at investors, why they invest in stocks? Uh, they they want some potential uh, growth. They want some long term returns. Uh, bonds they invest in for income. What are the reasons people invest in MLPs? Well, you know, it, again, as the as that landscape has evolved, uh, 15 years ago, this was a piece that not a lot of people talked about. It didn't certainly even on the institutional side, you didn't see a whole lot of investors uh, use them. And what's happened is they've gained some popularity in part because of their performance. But as rates have steadily declined, and as uh, for a great number of our clientele, they're looking for ways that they can generate some additional income, or they can generate a, a cash flow whether it's uh, for investments inside of their portfolio or even cash flow just to live on. And so these master limited partnerships have really fit a nice niche. And I think you've appropriately uh, titled them in the alternative space. That's uh, where most of the rest of the industry puts them. But the idea that uh, we're, they do generate some growth, uh, they've, they've performed very well. Uh, in fact, up until last year, they'd, they'd beaten the broader market. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might say that uh, referring to the S&P 500, they'd beaten it quite handily from 96 uh, up through last year. The, the Master Limited Partnership Index was up about 938% versus wow. the S&P was up 157%. So certainly you get, uh, you get the income. They, uh, they, create a, uh, they don't call it a dividend when we're talking mm-hmm. about Master Correct. Limited Partnership, the distribution. Right, good point. Technical difference, it's important for the IRS when they do that. But uh, but uh, I think as important, this is a type of an investment that gives you the opportunity for some growth as well. And then certainly most of the time for our clients or for investors as they approach me and ask about them, they've usually gone through some type of a screen, and some of these will come right up to the top because they have very generous yields uh, quite often associated with them. And they're usually very consistent with the way that they with the way that they pay those distributions. Okay, so if I were to put that together in um, kind of a, a one-word a one version, if I say stocks, we go after growth, uh, bonds, we go for income, uh, MLPs, we might say both. Yeah, almost a hybrid type of an approach. Okay, all right. Now, one of the key reasons I wanted to have you talk about MLPs, and it's obviously not the only one you're familiar with, is I'm worried about a 35-year bull market in bonds eventually coming to an end. Now, admittedly, I've been on kind of on the bleeding edge of that prediction. Sold my bond holdings uh, more than three years ago, and I don't regret that. Uh, since I, even though I've missed some continued appreciation, uh, do you share my concern about the potential decline in bond prices? Boy, absolutely. It's um, it's interesting. This has been a, a point of conversation and a lot of discussions with clients, and, and even amongst uh, amongst my peers. As you so so precisely put it, you've had 35 years where for just about any bond investment that an investor has made, they've put the money into a bond, and not only have they received the, the income, but they've mm-hmm. seen the bond prices go up. And unfortunately, or fortunately, the, that part of the market, I really do believe, has, has started to run its course um, with rates as low as they are right now. For most investors, when we look at that, it's kind of take a guess as to what which way rates will go. Mm-hmm. Only, we only have three choices. They can go up, they can go down, or they can go sideways. Well, where we are presently, I don't think there's a whole lot of opportunity for them to go much lower, right. which really limits any appreciation that the bond may produce for you. And if the rates go up, uh, of course, as rates rise, the price of those existing bonds fall. You're thinking about a portfolio and thinking about total return, which would be any growth or losses plus your your distributions. I think that that creates a pretty challenging environment for those for a lot of bonds, not for all bonds entirely. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't eliminate that as an asset class to consider. I wouldn't eliminate it from my portfolio, but certainly for any bond or bond fund that I own, I want to be aware of that 
interest rate risk, which I think is probably the largest risk that, uh, that certainly bondholders face right now. And, mm-hmm. and quite honestly, for investors in general, I think that's one of the risks. That we okay. Yeah, and I'm just trying to tell Pete here, he's got his mic is picking up a lot of background noise, and I don't know, it should be on mute, but somehow we're, we're picking up noise, so just letting him know that. Uh, so I guess this would be an appropriate time where financial advisors very often mention, but, you know, if somebody's looking at bond history and say, hey, bonds have done great, and, you know, not just five years, 10 years, 20 years, but, you know, 30 years, uh, that must mean they're going to continue to do that. So this is one of those good times to say that uh, uh, past performance is not a guarantee of the future, even when you look at 35 years' worth of past performance. Well, and it's, it's I, boy, I think it's super important that you look at what caused that performance because the metrics that created the performance for those bonds that same environment doesn't exist right now. I mean, we, we went from extremely high rates. A lot of your, right. a lot of your listeners, uh, a lot of our friends will remember when uh, there's several stories in, in Coffee Club when we talk where people say, yeah, I remember when I, my CDs were paying 10, 12, 14 percent. We tend to forget that mortgages were high and there were some other circumstances that may not have been as pleasant. But now as those rates have dropped, um, the, the head or the tailwinds that 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 group, whether specifically the fixed income investors enjoyed, that tailwind is really, I think it's run its course. And, you know, your comment about having sold your bonds three years ago, I've used the example Bill Gross, who's a, right. the bond king, sold a bunch of his bonds uh, last year with the anticipation that we were going to start to see rates rise. And for a variety of reasons, that didn't happen. But I, I think there's a general sentiment uh, within the, certainly within the, the industry that that secular uh, bull market for bonds is coming to a close, and we're going to have to be cautious with that particular segment of what we own. Again, I don't want to tell to suggest people that they need to run out of it, but simply we need to be cautious and understand what it is that we own and why we own it. Why we own it. Good good point. Well, let me remind our listeners, you're tuned into the uh, Wealth uh, DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki, and I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. If you missed some of the prior shows, like the one I mentioned about Russ Wiles uh, being on and talking about alternative investments recently, if you want to re-listen to them, uh, maintain an archive of shows on WealthDNA.us. If you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows, you can do one of two things, or, of course, do them both, send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Or in the upper left-hand side of the screen, if you're coming in through the Internet, just under the Boomer in the Bates picture, click the Follow button. You'll be informed of each of the great shows on the network. And reminder, during the radio show, we welcome you. Yes, you, our listeners, to ask questions. Either there's a chat window right underneath the radio player, or you can call in 917 388 Four one six two, and that number is at the top of the screen. So, as a reminder, you can always uh, call in on that number. Today, we're talking about MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships, with Jason Slade, a financial advisor with Raymond James in Goodyear, Arizona, and Sun City West. I get to keep remembering. I, I know him more through the Goodyear office because it's closer by, but uh, they do have an office in Sun City West as well. So, Jason, when we had Russ Wiles of the Arizona Republic on this show, uh, it was a number of months ago. We talked about various alternatives to the low yields on uh, CDs, which I refer to as certificates of depreciation, by the way, uh, money markets and short-term bonds. He wasn't as familiar with MLPs as another one of those alternatives, so we're counting on you to shed a lot of light on them. Do you talk to most of your clients about investing in MLPs? Yeah, we really do. And, and again, a number of our clients are very uh, income-oriented, at least for mm-hmm. part of their portfolio. And, and in some respects, uh, although these don't have the exact same characteristics as a bond, the income or the cash flow, the, the distributions that they create, become very important in terms of portfolio building and maintenance, but also, again, from an income standpoint. And so, yeah, we this becomes a, a, a talking point for almost every client where we discuss where do these fit, if they fit, uh, right. what the dangers, uh, what the dangers may or may not be. As with any asset class, it's not perfect, and you have to recognize what it is that you own and what the risks and potential advantages are. Um, but our our clients that have used these um, uh, certainly uh, in, in recent years have been well rewarded for it with both distribution and some growth uh, to boot. 
Okay. We should probably pick a few names just so that um, some of our listeners can do some research while they're uh, while they're listening to the show uh, using some specific symbols. Uh, now, these I want to remind people we're not necessarily making these recommendations, but you might as well pick a few of the symbols or names that uh, you and the analysts at Raymond James like, uh, just so that people can start taking a look at them. Well, there are a couple that uh, that we like quite a bit that we that have entered the discussions and, and been consistent, oh, mm-hmm. I would say, for about the last year or so. One of them that uh, get, we discuss quite a bit is a company called Lin Energy, L-I-N-N is the first name. The symbol is L-I-N-E. Mm-hmm. Um, Lin in the last 12 months, uh, again, this will be referred to a total return, but uh, total right. return in the last 12 months of about 10.3%. Uh, a large portion of that is made up of their yield. Their distribution is north of 7%, uh, approaching that 7.5% range. Um, like a lot of the sector, a bit of a pullback in the prices, and it's made that, a, I think, an attractive entry, mm-hmm. uh, one, of, one that we talk quite a bit about. A few of the others that we that we discuss, uh, companies like Enterprise Partners, uh, Enterprise mm-hmm. Product Partners, excuse me, the symbol there is EPD, Mm-hmm. Um, Enterprise trades at roughly $56 a share and has a yield of about 4.7% uh, as things stand presently. And again, similar type of total return over the last 12 months, uh, about 12%. So uh, that's that's a return that most of our clients are, are are pretty comfortable receiving if we can get into those double-digit kind of a range. Sure. Another one that we we have used a lot in the past, and this one actually gives us some flexibility, particularly when we talk about uh, IRAs and some of those others, is a company like Kinder Morgan, uh, okay. which actually has two different share classes. So the two symbols there would be KMP, mm-hmm. the more traditional master limited partnership as you and I uh, would know it, about $89 a share, and uh, distribution of about 5.7%. The other symbol that would fit in there is KMR, um, it too is about eighty-two dollars uh, per share. Now the subtle difference here is uh, KMR is one that we use in IRAs. Um, there's there's some tax pieces that we need to be aware of when we use these vehicles. They they have some potential challenges if we in the IRAs, and I, we can talk about that momentarily. But because of the, those potential tax challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kinder Morgan is one, and it's the original uh, that, that put together a different share class. Tracks the same uh, oil and gas, tracks the same pipelines. I should have said that earlier. These really tend to be pipeline companies. It's storage and distribution is the way that you want to think about it. Oil okay. and natural gas, so it, it really does the same thing, but this one, as opposed to a distribution in cash, has a share distribution, and then it, that works far better inside of the IRA. So a couple of names. I guess I'd share one more that we've just kind of put on the radar, and that's TK Partners. Uh, symbol there is T-O-O for TK, okay. I'm sure. That gives you a, a couple to a couple to consider anyway. Okay. Yeah, that one I'm not familiar with, so that does put one on the radio screen. Uh, I will admit Enterprise uh, Product Partners and, and, and K, uh, the Kinder Morgan KM uh, uh, P specifically, I've been involved in probably over the last ten years. Uh, KMP, I still own some shares. It has been up dramatically this year and and, and recently, and so uh, you know it is one of those that I'm probably trimming more than anything else. And I just want to make sure that our listeners know that uh, I do invest in some of these, but I don't always always buy them. I may be selling them at any point in time, or I might be buying and selling depending on the price fluctuations. Uh, but that's a key point I want to ask you about to make sure listeners understand is just like a stock, if the price on Kinder Morgan is up and, and Lynn Energy happens to tick down, uh, I can sell Kinder and I can buy uh, Lynn Energy at a point in time, correct? Absolutely. The, these are pieces, we kind of alluded to this briefly earlier, mm-hmm. they're very liquid to us. So they can be bought and sold at any at any point in time during the trading day. And so being able to, as, as you suggested, Buy on those dips and sell at those peaks. You know the comment that you made about Kinder, where you're up about eleven and a half percent already for the year to right. trim some of that growth as you go along. Boy, that makes good sense, and it's where this I, I think this asset class serves very well for that because you can be tactical and, and uh, with with the way that you make your acquisitions and the way that you the way that you trim those positions. 
Mm-hmm. And still and still get the income in the process. So you're picking yep. up both uh, both growth and, and and maybe picking up some of them on, on peaks. Uh, and I, at least my experience has been, I've never uh, lost any money taking profits. <laughs> no, that's a good rule to live by. If the worst thing that you have to happen to you, you've taken profits and you have to pay some taxes. That's still right. going to be an okay problem to have. That's right, exactly. Because they still take, uh, at least today, still take less in taxes than we uh, than we get to keep. So that's not so bad. Correct. Exactly. Now I'm going to use the term intentionally of dividend yield, um, and and you correct you'll correct me on this one, which is good. So I want to make sure that gets stressed with our with our investors. Uh, we tend to look at our screens and we see the term dividend, those kinds of things. But what kind of yield would investors expect from uh, from a KMP or from uh, a Lin Energy? Uh, you you talked about the total return, but let's just just make sure we scale back to just the yield portion of that. Uh, what are those typically running? Sure. Um, the, so right now, Kinder, uh, again, and I'm referring to KMP here, Kinder okay. Morgan's yielding 5.7%. And I would tell you that historically, it, it's run right around that neighborhood of about 6% in terms of its distribution rate. Again, as the price goes up, of course, that yield will appear lower, but it's, it's mm-hmm. roughly in that same uh, that same kind of a vein. Lynn Energy, and this is part of why we've liked it, Kinder, it, you said this earlier, has done extremely well in the last several mm-hmm. years. Lynn Energy, uh, part of why we've used it, uh, particularly in the last you know, year and changes, because the yield is higher. The yield on, on Lynn Energy right now is 7.4%. And so for those clients who've had bonds get called or we've taken profits out of, bond as you, out of bonds, as, as you may have done you know, three years ago, and you start to look for, right, where can I, re- can I replace some of that income or that uh, cash flow, we've, we've plugged in some of those pieces. It, it's not... Uh, you can very quickly see that, you know, like a Kinder Morgan and maybe a TK Offshore or Lynn Energy, you can cobble a couple of those together and get a yield or a distribution rate that's north of 6%, which for a lot of clients is a very healthy distribution and, and satisfies a lot of their cash flow needs when we do it that way. Okay, and when your clients make that same mistake and call it dividend, uh, you don't yell at them or anything like that, correct? No, no, no. It, it, that's that's yield. very common. In fact, <laughs> most people call it dividend, uh, a dividend, and rather than a distribution. And it, again, that's what, just one of the quirks here. We actually don't own shares of of Kinder Morgan. We own units right, of them. Units, exactly. We don't we don't get dividends. We get distributions, and it's just a function of being a master limited partnership, as opposed to a traditional C corp or corporate structure that most of the other stocks that we would. Uh, that we would trade, follow that that path. So terminology is important, but it, it's certainly understood even if you call it a dividend versus a distribution. Right, and shares instead of units. But now, I, I just want to emphasize that point. So if we take those two, uh, you know, over 5%, north of, heavily north of 5%, and north of 7% yield, uh, it's very hard to compare that to a bond which doesn't have that upside, as you said. And bonds, you know, if you're getting 4 to 5%, you're doing pretty well, and uh, you don't have that upside, as you had mentioned. So in a lot of ways, these really do have some... Uh, uh, you know, attraction. We'll talk about what, where, where there are some um, differences in, in comparing them to apples and apples. But before we do that, let me ask you about how a uh, uh, you know these MLPs would compare against a, a high yield stock or maybe even a utility stock, because those have been again the utility stock specifically have traditionally been an alternative to bonds uh, that give you a little bit of appreciation. They don't move very much, but uh, there is some appreciation potential. So you know if I want to compare it to those, uh, how would you comment on MLP versus a high yield stock? Well, it's an interesting question because, again, for for most clients or for most investors, as we screen for yield, mm-hmm. um, the, those high-yield stocks, as you suggested, the you know, there's another category of royalty trusts um, and the master limited partnerships. They all start to kind of float up to the top. And so to differentiate between them, master limited partnerships, again, because of what they do, because of the way that they they create their revenue, again, from whether it's the distribution or the, or the storage, they're required to pass on, much like a REIT, mm-hmm. I'm sure your, your listeners are familiar with, they're required to pass on 90% of that revenue. It, it has to pass through. And so they become a very good cash flow vehicle for us. Um, because we're talking about uh, one of the things that we talk with our clients about, you're talking about oil and natural gas. Um, ideally, much like a utility stock, we're talking about something that 
um, has some staying power to it, that we're not likely to be able to shift to some other technology or some other energy source, at least not easily. And so there's some staying power to, to what's happening there. Uh, in that respect, I would view this, view this very favorably with utility stock, but you're probably going to get more yield from a master limited partnership, and I think you're going to get more growth opportunity, um, particularly as you, when you look at the utility stocks and you consider whether it's a regulated or a non-regulated uh, utility. I think there's some opportunities there. On the uh, on the high yield stocks, um, one of the things that I think that you see out of the master limited partnerships is I think there's quite often there's a better opportunity for a growth of that distribution rate as opposed to on the high yield stocks. Um, mm -hmm. Usually, if they're yielding something very high, you're forfeiting something else along the way. And then, as I alluded to before, I'll just take the last 15 years or so, the the Illyrian uh, MLP index. That okay. AMP, Glad you mentioned that. You're up, you're up 938 percent on that piece versus the broader market, uh, only up 157 percent. Doesn't make the the high yield stocks bad. It just I, I think it it would temper my enthusiasm a little bit to pick those um, at least as as unique and sole positions versus the master limited partnerships. I, I really think those master limited partnerships offer both growth of principal and a nice growth of your, your dividend or your distribution rate as we go along. Okay, and I'm going to remind our listeners that if they, they listen to our show on inflation and bond prices, I mentioned your name, and I specifically used your teeter-totter analogy that you, that you often use, and I, I think it's a great one, that when interest rates um, start to rise, and they will, uh, bond prices will go down. And I'm hoping that MLPs will act a little differently, uh, that they'll act a little bit more like stocks than they will with bonds. Am I right on this? Yeah, I think in in general, I would I would echo that comment. I I I do believe that they will act more like a stock and less like a bond. The the one challenge that that the group would have, and this is going to be more a function of whether we're talking about a mature uh, one of the mature MLPs or one of the newer MLPs, is bear in mind that there are some uh, fairly significant capital costs. When you're talking about storage, you're talking about pipelines, you're talking about the infrastructure that that goes along with those pieces. If I'm a newer uh, business and I'm having to build out those pieces in the face of rising rates and and rising borrowing costs, mm -hmm. that could dampen um, some of my my potential performance and dampen or pull back the unit prices on the master limited partnerships. Now I don't think that will be the ca the case across the board. And in fact, I uh, given a choice between the way that the bonds again using that teeter totter analogy, uh, where I see those bonds having a decline if the interest rates were to go up. I don't see the same strength of headwind for the master limited partnerships uh, in general, and certainly for those that we, that we alluded to earlier, I, I think that uh, the environment right now is one that portends still some growth for them. Okay. Now, are there some investors uh, or, or, or their circumstances that would discourage, uh, that you would discourage, you tell those clients, you know, in your situation, it, it's probably not ideal to invest in MLPs uh, of, of, you know, the, the traditional sort, the, the KMPs, the EDPs, and, and uh, Lynn Energy. Uh, are there, what, and what are those circumstances, if so? You know, there are, um, there are two reasons why typically uh, and when we bring these up with the clients, there's two reasons why you may not want to okay. own the master limited partnership. And the one is a is a very, um, I would call it more of an emotion-based reason than anything else, and that is the way that you receive your tax or your reporting information at the end of the year. A master limited partnership, because of its structure, you're not going to receive a, a traditional 1099. Uh, mm -hmm. Coming close to the end of January here, and most of us are expecting our 1099s to be received if you own a master limited partnership, A, you're not going to get a 1099, and B, when you get your reporting information, it's going to be a K-1, and it likely mm -hmm. won't get there until March, and then even at that point it might say that it's not finalized. Correct. And so for those folks who are very anxious about being able to file their taxes and get everything done before, um, before the tax deadline or uh, that want to uh, have all those buttoned down, master limited partnership is going to be a little bit challenging just because the reporting is a little bit delayed, and it's different than the 1099. It doesn't make it bad. It's just it's a it's a different way of uh, of, uh, of the way that that's being produced. 
The mm-hmm. second okay. reason why we may not want to use a traditional master limited partnership, and let me underscore that traditional piece, right, is if we're talking about a client who who just has a, a um, an IRA type of an account, uh, we would mm-hmm. call that a qualified vehicle. If you've got a qualified vehicle, owning a traditional master limited partnership um, in there can become problematic because they they have the potential to create what's called unrelated business income tax. Uh, and it's as simple as, remember when I own a share of the company, I become an owner of the company. In the right. case of a, uh, of a master limited partnership, I become a limited partner. Well, there are times when those produ- they, they generate revenue um, that's that as it as it goes um, can create an, a scenario where if I own it inside of an IRA, I might get some unintended tax liability inside inside that IRA. And so traditionally, we're going to tell you, you know what, if you own it inside, we'd, we'd rather that you not own a traditional master limited partnership inside of the IRA to avoid the that tax. Um, potential tax liability there. And so we use some substitutes, whether they be closed-in funds or, as I suggested earlier, Kinder Morgan actually has an entirely different share class that we would use to, to still get access to that asset class but eliminate some of those challenges. Okay, and that simple as KMR, I'll just remind them, uh, was the one that you mentioned with, with the IRAs. Okay, so that first downside is that they'll be getting a K-1 in the spring as opposed to a 1099, and, and 1099s are close to my heart because at the moment I'm working on my 1098s and 1099s for, for investors and clients uh, for, for our own funds, so we got to get them out this week, as you appropriately said, whereas the K-1, uh, in our case as well, won't be available till March when we uh, actually do our corporate return, so uh, you're absolutely correct. Now, I will mention, for those people, People that do taxes on their own or whatever else, and they worry about that K-1, uh, or very often CPAs hate them, I'll remind you that Timothy, Timothy Geithner's uh, favorite software program, TurboTax, does indeed handle these K-1s pretty well. It just asks you what's in what boxes, and off it goes and puts it on the various returns. Whereas if you're doing them manually, it is a pain, because you do have to put uh, various uh, entries from that K-1 into various different forms on your tax return. So it is a little bit laborious. You know, Ron, let me let me mm-hmm. make yeah. one quick comment here as we're talking about the taxes. One of the benefits to owning those master limited partnerships is because of the way that they function, yes. the way that those distributions work. They become a very tax-efficient vehicle. Um, and so in that respect, um, in, in, at least in terms of the distributions, in that respect, it's something that if you're visiting with your accountant uh, and the accountant has somewhat of a grasp of what you're trying to accomplish – Right. It, it can uh, it can at least ameliorate some of the 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 challenge of having to put all those pieces in and be delayed because it is a very tax efficient way um, to receive those distributions and the accountants certainly like it when you're not paying any extra taxes and this is a group that that can help you to do some of that. Well, and, and I think that touches on your uh, uh, second uh, drawback, which is that uh, on IRAs, it's, it's, it's a little bit less appropriate. Because, uh, well, first of all, uh, those tax benefits aren't there on an IRA, so that right. let's you know, there's is both those sides, not just the inconvenience, but also the uh, uh, the fact that you're not taking advantage of them. But uh, for our listeners that just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. You can listen to the earlier portion on the archive. If you missed prior shows, you can hear them on the archives as well. Wealth DNA. Dot us and you'll find them all. Today we're discussing MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships, with Jason Slade, a very knowledgeable financial advisor with Raymond James in Goodyear, Arizona, and Sun City West, Arizona. So uh, right here locally where uh, where we're based. And uh, this uh, uh, whole tax law aspect that we've been talking about uh, let me let me go back to that because, uh, as you said, they they're not ideal for for IRAs, but uh, very often uh, real estate investors use their IRAs for real estate investment. If they borrow money, they generate that uh, UBIT, or and you appropriately said, is unrelated business income tax. The only big deal if you do cross the threshold of a thousand dollars a year is you have to file a uh, tax return for your IRA, which sounds you know terrible. Uh, but it is not the end of the world, so it's not like um, people should be scared off. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if it does, if an investor does use their IRA heavily, they might be thinking about uh, using those MLPs in the in the taxable accounts um, uh, rather than in their IRA. Correct? Yeah, and at the end of, at the end of the day, it, I, I think this is an asset class that has enough opportunities to it. 
that as long as you know what, again, we've said this earlier, as long as you know what you've bought and why you own it, and then with respect to the tax law, know what I have to file to make it work, then I think that you can, again, you just have to know what it is that you're doing so that you don't, it's about those unintended risks or unintended consequences, that's what you want to avoid. Exactly, and that's one of the reasons we like to have this, you know, on the show. We try to get these points across because we we don't want our listeners to say, "Well, gee, I guess I don't know enough about it." I, I think they they have a pretty good feel for uh, for how that works. Now, I understand Raymond James is is pretty particular about uh, use of IRAs for it, and they create a little extra bureaucracy for you. And I assume that's you know you understand this stuff and know it very well, but I assume it's also protect clients from some of the advisors who may not know the rules as well as you do. Correct. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It's uh, it, as, as we've been discussing this morning. There are enough uh, permutations that that fit in here that it, if you don't have a pretty good handle on what you're doing, you can act even if it's on accident. You can really trip up a client, uh, trip yourself up. And so, uh, Raymond James, like most brokerages, they they do keep a very close eye um, on what goes in, and because it's it's a consequence of okay, what's going to be reported and how is it going to happen, just to make sure it's. In my mind, it's always back to what's the liability, intended or unintended, and we don't want to create unintended liability there. So the brokerages are very cognizant about what you're putting in. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, our, our, there were several IPOs that just came out recently on the Master Limited Partnerships, uh, the most recent one being USA Compression. And those uh, came out, our syndicate group who helped bring some of those companies to market, uh, they had a tagline on the bottom saying, "We we would suggest that you not put this into the IRA." So they're they're very aware of what's going on there, and that's that's really to try to protect that client against not knowing what they have to do, what hoops they have to jump through in that space. And uh, you you've said it very appropriately, Ron. Know what you have to file. If you've got those pieces kind of nailed down, you can eliminate some of those those unintended liabilities and unintended consequences. Correct. Go into it with your eyes wide open. Now you've mentioned uh, several several of the MLPs, and, and those, as, as you appropriately said, are primarily in, in natural gas pipelines and, and uh, uh, petroleum pipeline pipelines, those kinds of things. Uh, what's the range of investments in MLPs? Can, can they invest in anything? And, and what are the kinds of things that we can take a look at out there in the uh, you know in the current MLPs? You know, you get a you get a really broad range. Normally, when you look at MLPs, it's going to be, and I would say almost ninety eight percent, it's going to be oil and natural gas uh, okay. storage and distribution. That that's tr- that's typically who you're going to see. But you're going to find other companies. One that one that we have talked about a great deal lately with clients, and I, I don't mean to be morbid as I say this, but it's a <laughs> company called Stonemore. Uh, okay. Stonemore is funeral homes and cemetery services. Uh, that, that that entire industry, so really nothing to do with oil and natural gas, but follows that same partnership type of a structure. So, again, it creates a K-1. And like most master limited partnerships, because they have to pay out so much of their revenue, very attractive yield. That one's yielding uh, 9.5% at present, wow. with about a $24 price, uh, price tag on it, and uh, up uh, very smartly year-to-date up almost 19% at this point. So um, you, you're going to find those master limited partnerships. It, again, most corporations, they get to make a choice as to how they want to be organized. So you know, a master limited partnership could really run the gamut of, of, of types of companies, but traditionally you're going to find more of the, the oil, and, uh, in oil and natural gas is what's really going to be the 98% of the time that's the company that you're going to see. How about TOO, which you mentioned earlier? Uh, what, what are they invested in? TK does a variety of things. Um, th- that's that's a company, as I said, just recently kind of um, onto the radar that we've used. It's they'll do marine transportation. Uh, it's offshore processing for and storage for crude oil. Um, that's one that we've used in some respects because it gives us some exposure, uh, both certainly here domestically, but also down in, into Brazil. So if you're looking at ways to mm-hmm. diversify geographically, this would be one of those companies that, that would allow you to do that. Okay. All right. And I and I assume all of this is driven by the, the you know the laws that define the MLPs and, and what they're allowed to invest in and and to get their uh, avoiding the double taxation, all of those things. So they do have some limitations, but it has a pretty broad range when we're talking about cemeteries and marine transport. And yep. uh, I guess some of the uh, basically there's I guess real estate and and uh, um, 
natural resources are kind of the the common thread there. I was just going to okay. say that that's mm-hmm. what those have to be. It's energy, it's retail gotcha. and, and and or pardon me, retail, real estate and natural resources, and that's where uh, you know, a company like Stonemore, I think that that fits under that real estate provision because it certainly isn't on the energy side. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Now, are there any funds of MLPs? So if somebody doesn't want to go and individually pick these, are there some funds or, or even ETFs of MLPs uh, that would be uh, you know, another way to go at it? And would they maybe uh, be helpful in, in IRAs to, uh, to solve that K-1 problem? Yeah, there are. And, and there's really two different methodologies that you can use in there um, okay. on, the, on the fund side. So you have closed-end mutual funds and you have open-ended mutual funds. And, mm-hmm. and there, there's an important note here on an open-ended mutual fund because because most of those are organized under the Investment uh, Company Act of 1940, those open-ended funds cannot have more than 25% of their portfolio invested into master limited partnerships. Okay. And right. so when you look at them, you've got to be, even if it says it's a master limited partnership fund, it's typically going to have some of the periphery uh, as a main part of what it does because it, by law, they're restricted as to how much direct exposure they can have. So, uh, you know, if you're familiar with the Oppenheimer family of funds, they just bought a company, uh, a fund company called Steel Fund, and you'll, mm-hmm. they've got about five different choices within that uh, within that energy sector. Cushing, uh, named appropriately after Cushing, Oklahoma, where you have the storage facilities. Ah, Cushing okay. has the Master Limited Partnership uh, Fund that that's not, doesn't have a real long track record, but again, will get us close into this, into this vein. We have chosen, in part because of the restriction there, we've chosen to use some of the closed-end funds, okay. and a couple that I think uh, make some sense. We've used Kane Anderson, and Kane Anderson is actually an investment group, and they have two versions of the uh, this piece. So uh, the one symbol that we use is KYN. Mm-hmm. Uh, KYN is a um, master limited partnership fund. You're going to get uh, un- because it's a closed in fund. We're going to lose that restriction on the 25% uh, piece there. These all pay 10.99, or pardon me, they all pay dividends, and you okay. get 10.99 uh, tax reporting on them as opposed to the K1 making them appropriate to put into your IRA. And then for many clients who don't want the K-1, this is what they'll own outside of it. We forego some of the tax benefits that you get under when you own just the, the singular uh, master limited partnership but still get exposure to that uh, to that group. So KYN is one. Uh, Kane Anderson also has another fund that's uh, called a sister fund. It picks up some of the peripheral pieces, and that one is KYE. Uh, okay. Kane Anderson, for its part, I know we talked about some of the other yields. Kane Anderson uh, is presently yielding 6.8%, uh, okay. priced at about $32 a share. Uh, and then Kane Energy, Energy, uh, which is the KYE, okay. is yielding north of 7% um, as, as things stand presently. The other two, steel, the Steel Path Funds and the Cushing, which are the open-ended versions, you're going to find that their yields are a little bit lower. Um, part of that is uh, Kane Anderson can employ some leverage, and so we try to temper, uh, let our clients know that that leverage can cut both ways. Um, The other thing with the closed-end fund that you've got to be aware of is because it's a closed-end fund, it doesn't always just trade on what the value of the assets are that it's invested into, And, and by that I simply mean supply and demand can push the prices higher or lower than what the actual price of the of the securities inside of it are. For instance, at present, Kane Anderson, the KYN that I mentioned earlier, is trading at about an 11% premium to par. Wow. So this would be one that, you know, if we've owned it for a while, we probably want to go ahead and, t- and and trim back a little bit. And if we're considering buying, I might want to wait just a just a bit. I don't. Um, most of the, again, this group has received a lot more. Um, publicity of late and a lot more interest and you're starting to see more of the insti- more institutional type of investors coming into that master limited partnership space and as that happens it's bid up some of those other prices causing a lot of these to be at premiums and for that same reason I made the comment about Kinder Morgan I probably wouldn't buy Kinder Morgan right now but I would consider a, you know a, a Lynn Energy or a, or a TK offshore because I think you're getting better pricing on those 
Okay. All right. Excellent. Excellent points. And and so the open-ended funds really are not very pure plays. Closed-end can be, but as you said, uh, they do get over the the, the K one dilemma. But uh, on the other hand, there is a premium or discount to net asset value, and somebody should be cognizant of that before uh, before investing. Okay. Excellent. Now, one of the key questions I don't want to forget to ask. How do MLPs differ? And you had touched on uh, very briefly royalty trusts, and you mentioned that term. Uh, royalty trusts kind of remind me of what uh, I was invested in back in the uh, 1980s, uh, these kind of thinly traded things. Uh, tell us the difference in, in royalty trusts versus MLPs. Probably the, the biggest single, singular difference is a royalty trust typically has a it has a timeline or a maturity associated with it. Um, okay. When they're when they're created, much like a master limited partnership, these are usually based off of some type of an energy production, whether that be shale oil or natural gas or what have you, and they have a set or at least a, an, uh, an idealized distribution rate that they're going to follow. They tend to have very very high distributions attached to them. But they also have a useful life limitation, and for for most, that ends up being about 20 years. And the idea behind that would be, if I bought one at its opening today, 20 years from now, mm-hmm. that uh, that entity should have sucked all of whatever the energy in the ground that they were trying to get out, they should have sucked all of that out of the ground, and so the value of the security would be zero, but I would have received all my distributions. And usually they'll have some type of a projected rate of return associated with them. Uh, recently, you know, in the last you know, six to eight months, we've had Sandridge and Whiting and several others come out, and, and their projected uh, returns over those the 20-year periods usually run in the nine to ten and a half kind of a range in terms of the uh, your your return um, your return on your investment. So it's still a, a very a very nice return potential, but um, you know the, the, at the end of this it should be a zero sum game. They don't always trade that way. Sometimes you come, you end up with a little bit of a, an uptick. Um, I'm looking at Whiting right now, which is one that, uh, as I said, it's only about six months old, seven months old. It opened at 20 and it's at 16.86. When I say it opened, that was a, the IPO price. Right. But if you're looking for distribution. It's showing a distribution presently of 18 percent, so certainly way up on the upper strata. Um, Unlike the master limited partnerships, which don't have a useful life uh, dictated at the at the outset. Uh, And then, so to that end, I you know you may mix in a, a royalty trust, but I would have that be a smaller piece as opposed to where the MLP might have a, a larger portion attached to it. Okay, yeah, I wanted to touch on that difference since if somebody is looking by high yield and, and, and they pick up the MLPs, they're also going to pick up a royalty trust that may even be at the top. But a very important point you touched on is is if their useful life is 20 years, that means five on average 5% per year of that distribution is just a return of capital because you're getting the, the uh, uh, 120th of, of the original money you put in back again so that over 20 years it's down to, uh, to, to zero. So it's kind of like an annuity. Uh, you put your money in and you'll keep getting monthly uh, amounts, uh, but at the end, it's not worth anything. Uh, so you've got to be aware that a lot of it is your own money coming back in the case of royalty trusts, unlike, uh, uh, although there's a little bit in MLPs, it's a, it's a very small component compared to uh, royalty trusts. I want to make sure that our, our listeners are aware of that difference to make sure that they know that uh, if they're getting in a royalty trust, it's a different animal than an MLP, even though they kind of look and smell similar. And the other thing to, to just two two last quick comments on the mm-hmm. on the royalty trust. Typically, when they file, when they open, um, you're, they'll give you a schedule of what they project those distributions are going to be. And so, some years they're higher than others, and so you need to be aware of that. The other part is as they end, as they near the end of their useful life, those yields tend to spike up. But it's because the price has dropped. So be cautious right. when you see those, because certainly the highest <laughs> yield may mean. We're only a year or six months away from uh, from the price going to zero, and then that's not one that we probably want to own. Gotcha. All right. Go, very, very good point. As you as you move down the scale, if if it's we're down to a dollar, then they 
pay out fifty cents, that's a fifty percent return. But it's uh, it's half of what's left, and that may not it may be gone by tomorrow. So, a uh, very very good uh, mathematical thing we sometimes forget about. Now you have, uh, unlike most in- individual investors, you've got a whole uh, research team that uh, looks at this stuff. In addition to yourself, who's very knowledgeable. Uh, so, would it be fair to say that if somebody is looking at MLPs or or funds of MLPs or royalty trusts, uh, that they might want to talk to you before jumping in? Yeah, I, I would I would encourage uh, if you're considering this asset class in general that you know that you reach out to someone who's got some knowledge on the uh, on the subject matter that's going to be able to give you some direction. There are enough nuances here that you just uh, as we've said you need to know what you're buying and what it's going to do, but you also need to know the implications on, in terms of the taxes. And so, at least having a, a thumbnail sketch of what's going to take place there, I think will put you further ahead than just you know doing a doing a search for yield and picking out that the highest yielder because there are going to be some great stocks in there there are going to be some great master limited partnerships but not all of them may be um, the best choice for you uh, within that mix so absolutely i would i would get an expert or someone who's got some good knowledge Okay, let's get your contact information out. So uh, I, I would think that after this show, most people recognize you know this stuff pretty darn well. Uh, let's get both the phone number and the website back out again. Yeah, the the phone number to contact us is 623-478-2368. And then, as I said, probably the easiest way to get to our website uh, is just Jason, the letter L, and then Slade, S-L-A-D-E dot com. Or you can email me directly at uh, jason.slade at raymondjames.com, and I'd, I'd be happy to field any questions and and be of any assistance that we can. This is uh, uh, My wife tells me that I'm somewhat of a geek because this is what I like to do and I like to think about, uh, <laughs> but it, uh, this is fun, and we're happy to help any way that we can. Okay. Jason, I think we've covered a lot of ground today, and you've shared a lot of great information. Are there some aspects we didn't cover that we should uh, related to MLPs and royalty trusts and then and, and, and the whole uh, IRA landscape, K-1s, those kinds of things? What else, what did we miss that we should cover? You know, I think that we hit the, the key the key pieces. I would I would go back and I would just underscore where so much of the uh, of the investing universe is going to more, uh, more towards those packaged type of products we talked about the open-ended funds versus the closed-end funds. Just to really, if you're going to do this on your own, if you're going to attempt that, make sure that you really dive in and know are you getting a pure play or not and what those distinctions are. And then in an, in an environment where leverage is used across so many different platforms, how much leverage am I going to be exposed to? I, I started my comments at the beginning by saying, let's not have unintended risk creep into our portfolios. Yep. This is a place where you can have unintended risk if you're not watchful as to what's taking place. And so that would be kind of my my closing commentary there, the only thing that would make sure to reiterate. Excellent. As usual, I've learned a lot, and I'm confident our listeners will join me in thanking you for taking an hour out of your schedule to talk to us. And I hope being on the show wasn't too stressful. You'll be able to um, come come back on and share some invite, insights on on other types of investments uh, and, and use some of the analogies like the ones I've uh, mentioned in the show in the past, your teeter-totter example and the garlic in your portfolio. Uh, I think you've got some great things. Hopefully, we can get you back on the show again. That sounds great, Ron. I've I've enjoyed the time. Thank you, and uh, really appreciate being able to share an hour. I, as I said, I I like talking about these things. I like studying them, and, it, and it's nice to be able to visit about them. Thank you very much. And it shows you know the stuff. So really appreciate that. Thank you, Jason. You bet. Thanks, Ron. Okay. Now, how do I wrap up a very good and logical conversation with Jason? I guess I should point out a few things we didn't mention, as well as highlighting some some key points. Uh, If you happen to be a do-it-yourself investor and managing your own portfolio, you may miss opportunities like MLPs that you haven't taken advantage of because you weren't aware of them. That's why you listen to this show, and that's why we have guests like Jason on. On the other hand, if you use a financial advisor and you don't seem to be getting the same amount of information, it doesn't seem to be he or she doesn't seem to be as well versed as uh, uh, Jason is on, on this topic and others, uh, now you're aware there are capable financial advisors out there. And you might want to think about contacting Jason. He'll usually find a way to help you out, even if you're located in other states. I'm sure there are ways we can do that. Uh, We talked about the potential end to the bull market in uh, bonds, and some people call it the bond bubble bursting. I can tell you it will happen. Now, I'm not allowed to tell you exactly when, so that's the only catch on that one. 
I can also assure you it's not too early to diversify your portfolio to not be overly dependent on bonds and certificates of depreciation. Uh, I'm sorry, CDs. We'll, uh, uh, I guess we should talk about, for just a second, the uh, U.S. Federal Reserve, or the Fed as we affectionately call it. They've been working hard for many years to keep interest rates low, and they're still doing it. Uh, you see, as you invest in these low-interest bonds, you're actually subsidizing these uh, various stimulus programs in even the government deficit. Give that some thought. Another point I'd mention is uh, people will say don't fight the Fed. There is a flip side. What the Fed is doing is printing money to keep interest rates low. It's like holding a balloon underwater. You have to work harder and harder to keep pushing it down. Eventually, that balloon pops up out of the water very quickly. Now, are MLPs the right investment for you? Well, neither Jason nor I would answer that without knowing your specific situation. Personally, I've exited bonds, as I mentioned, and will continue to buy MLPs as prices decline. But in the way of full disclosure, as prices have been rising, I have been selling some of my holdings, and several of the MLPs we talked about in the show have risen dramatically. That increase in price, in addition to their yields, make them very attractive investments, and he shared some of those returns with us. Pretty certain they've outperformed the bonds that I sold off three years ago. So I guess I just reminded you of the first commandment of investing, which I follow diligently, buy low, sell high, which applies to all investments, including stocks, bonds, and MLPs. You see, the Ten Commandments of Investing are fundamentals, which were true 100 years ago, work today, and will still hold true in 100 years, and that's what we share on this show. They may just help you survive investing in these interesting times. We'll be continuing our series of shows on alternative investments, which is intended to provide you knowledge in areas of investments that most investors are never exposed to. And MLPs might be one that you haven't been exposed to. And remember that the N in Wealth DNA stands for knowledge or knowledge. Upcoming shows will have experts on hedge funds, angel capital, venture capital, mortgage notes, precious metals, and even asset protection. And I should remind you, a good way to increase your wealth is to tune into this show twice a month. We'll share the investment fundamentals, some great ideas, and inspire you to be as wealthy as you want to be. The next Wealth DNA Radio Show will be the second Monday of February. That's Monday, February 11th, 9 a.m. Arizona time, same place and same time. And remember, the archives of past shows are available on www.wealthdna.us. If you have some suggestions or questions, haven't received emails about the show, send an email to me. Ron at WealthDNA.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. And by the way, the next show on the Boomer of the Babe Network is at 11 a.m. Arizona time with Michelle Whitlock sharing a true story about how she found her voice. Sounds very inspiring. You might want to tune in at 11. Happy investing in these interesting times. You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started.